Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. People think self-compassion means just, again, accepting ourselves. It does, but they also, again, think it's accepting our behavior. In fact, what the research shows overwhelmingly is that self-compassion is a motivator. Self-compassion prompts us to do things differently when we want to improve or we're doing we're engaged in behavior that's healthy or the desire to meet our goals. You're listening to Kristen Neff on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Psychologists Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in it ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. Hey listeners, it's Jill here. As you know, in addition to being a POTC co-host, I'm also an author. And part of being an author is having a platform or an online presence. So if you like the types of interviews I do and you want to hear more from me on ACT, imposterism, anxiety, and more, I'd love it if you would help me out by signing up for my monthly newsletter and by following me on social media. Just go to jillstoddard.com and scroll to the bottom of any page to sign up for the newsletter and click the social media buttons in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for your support. So today on the episode, we have Dr. Kristen Neff, who many of you may know as one of the lead researchers in the area of self-compassion. And Jill, listen to the episode. And I'm curious, Jill, what was your reaction to it? Well, I got so much out of this episode. And if I'm being totally honest, you know, I, I have read a lot of Kristen Neff and studied her and included her in, in my books. So I wasn't sure what, what would be new. And I just loved that she was talking about the fierce side of compassion rather than just this more gentle side of compassion. I just, I got so much out of it that I didn't realize I was going to get out of it. There was a lot of cool new stuff in here. And some of the things that were new to me um, were terms that the two of you used quite a lot based on Buddhism and I think maybe other Eastern traditions. So things like yin and yang, which I know, you know, most of us have heard, but maybe don't know exactly what they mean, Kali and, and Durga. So I thought what might be helpful for listeners is if maybe you helped us to understand what those terms mean. And then there's like a little bit of foundation before jumping into the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, I think Kristen uses those terms as more metaphorically than the religious component associated with them. And by no means am I an expert in Chinese philosophy or uh, in um, some of these principles, but the term yin yang comes from uh, Chinese philosophy and it really is this balance. So the idea that sometimes what seemingly seems separate 
actually can be complementary. And it's the idea of dualism. So for example, the yin part of the yin yang, and you can think about that symbol that's like a circle with the swiggle through it. And it has one black and one side is black and one side is white. And there's a little bit of white in the black and a little bit of black in the white. The yin side of the yin yang is really often referenced as sort of the more passive or tender qualities in nature and in ourselves. Sometimes those are uh, associated with what's described as the feminine qualities and that the belief that everybody has feminine and masculine qualities inside of themselves. Folks maybe even done like yin yoga, where you hold a pose for a really long time and you actually just really relax into the pose. But I think of yin as the sort of letting go, that there's no effort. And sometimes it's also the going inward. And with compassion, there is an aspect of the tenderness of turning towards ourselves with kindness, which is the first part of compassion that Gilbert has talked about in terms of turning towards the suffering, whether it's in yourself or another, being willing to to turn towards. The second part of compassion is the taking action about it. And that's the yang. So in the yang part of this dualism, it's about taking action, energy, movement, doing something uh, about the suffering that we experience. And for me, I think a really good example of the balance of yin yang was when I interviewed Christy Hagens, who was one of my mentors and the founder of Black Safe Spaces a while back. And she talked about in the face of her own racial trauma, showing up as a warrior and how she used that sort of warrior energy, both to protect herself, both in like a tender way, but then also using it to take action to protect others. So I think that's a good example of this balance. So would you say that when Kristen is talking about fierce compassion, is that word fierce more young? Yes, okay. I would say fierce is young. And that's why she's bringing up also, we talked about these goddesses. And for me, so actually one of the practices that I took back a lot during COVID was chanting. That was something I did a number of years ago, but I like brought that back in. And so for me, when I chant, I'm actually chanting to aspects of myself, things inside of myself that I want to cultivate, right? So when we're talking about these goddesses, so Kali, who is a Hindu goddess who sticks her tongue out and her eyeballs are like coming out and she's like stands naked <laughs> with like jewels all over her. She's like a goddess of fierce anger, right? That she has a sister, Durga, who's like the mother goddess, who, who is the protector. And I think for women in particular, accessing our anger and then what do we do with it? That fierceness for me, it shows up with my kids are in baseball and some of the coaching practices make me really angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like this urge just go yell at the coach. But if I did that, that would be all Kali energy, right? And it probably wouldn't go over well, right? If I went and yelled at the coach that was yelling, but actually pulling in some of this other tender side, which is the side that is like centered and, um, and also caring and act acting from both this balance. And I, I often think of balance as more as a verb than a noun, right? Like it's your, if you got a lot of yin, you need to add a little yang. If you got a lot of yang, you need to add a little bit of yin and that it's constantly going back and forth. And I think Kristen talks a little bit about that in the episode as well. Yeah, she does talk quite a bit about it. So this I think is really helpful to have this scaffolding and understand where those terms are coming from and, and how listeners can think about them as they're listening to this episode today. So it's a real treat to have Dr. Kristen Neff on the show today. Many of our listeners have heard us talk about Dr. Neff's, Neff's work, as well as probably studied it on our own in the area of self-compassion. She's currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, and she's a real pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion almost 20 years ago. She's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, in conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, who we've had on the show in the past. And she's developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. They co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook and Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals. And today we're going to talk about her newest work, which focuses on how to balance self-acceptance with the courage to make needed change. This is such timely work, and it's called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. 
It's a real honor and delight to have you on. Welcome, Kristen. Oh, thanks, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And, you know, Fierce Compassion is aimed particularly at women and focuses on the importance of taking courageous action to alleviate suffering. And in the book, you write about why it's important that we both tenderly accept ourselves while also needing to be fierce. And I'm wondering if we could start with this, what you describe as the yin and the yang of compassion. Right. Yeah. And and by the way, I didn't come up with this idea. The idea of fierce compassion is something that's been talked about in Buddhism, um, but not so much necessarily fierce self-compassion. So that's maybe the little twist I put on it. But um, certainly in Buddhist thought, there's been a lot of dialogue about the fact that compassion isn't just acceptance. I mean, it is acceptance, especially acceptance of people, human beings is flawed and they make mistakes and they're still worthy of kindness and care. But that doesn't mean our actions are acceptable. Right? Apparently, there was a story that someone asked um, the Dalai Lama, what do you do about child pedophiles? He was giving a talk on compassion and he said, what do you mean? What do you do? You throw them in jail and you throw away the key, you know, just because the person is worthy of compassion doesn't mean we can't, we don't need to stand up to their actions. So, um, and I'd always been very fascinated by the idea of fierce compassion in my, in my Buddhist practice. And then what has happened is, you know, over the years doing research on self-compassion, I realized that most people tend to think of self-compassion in terms of its tender side. So the way to find tender self-compassion, this is for the nurturing, gentle, accepting energy of self-compassion is the ability to kind of accept ourselves, even if maybe we don't accept our behavior, to you know unconditionally support ourselves. It's warmth, it's kindness, it involves soothing and comforting. Um, but you know, self-compassion isn't always gentle. Sometimes, for instance, I see the Me Too movements and the Black Lives Matter movements as self-compassion movements. Right. Sometimes self-compassion means standing up, saying, no, you're treating me unfairly or, or drawing boundaries or protecting yourself. And that's a, a really important part of self-compassion. Sometimes it means, you know, getting angry if someone's harming you in some way, saying, you know, that's not OK and really drawing on that fierce energy or um, pro- uh, providing for ourselves. You know, especially women, we're so socialized, always meet others needs. Sometimes self-compassion means I need to meet my needs too. I need to actually do something. I need to act. I need to change something so that I can be fulfilled. And then probably the biggest one, the biggest misconception is around motivation. You know, people think self-compassion means just, again, accepting ourselves. It does, but they also, again, think it's accepting our behavior. In fact, what the research shows overwhelmingly is that self-compassion is a motivator. Self-compassion prompts us to do things differently when we want to improve or we're doing, we're engaged in behavior that's unhealthy or the desire to meet our goals. Uh, so I decided I wanted to write a book on this action oriented side of self-compassion. And I, and I like to call it the yin and yang of self-compassion because um, unfortunately people tend to think of these energies, the nurturing and the kind of agentic energies as masculine and feminine. And I like the terms yin and yang because it captures the same thing without necessarily tying it to gender, right? Yin is more the accepting, nurturing side of life. Yang is more the powerful, action-oriented side of life. And the reason it's so important not to define it by gender and also why I wrote this book for women is because uh, society actually genders these things, right? Society doesn't allow men to be tender. I mean, they get called names. They names that get called sissies. And this really harms men. Men are cut off from a lot of their emotional intelligence because of the fact that they aren't allowed to be nurturing and tender as children. And that, that really harms men. But women, on the other hand, are socialized the other way. They aren't allowed to be fierce. They aren't allowed to get angry. You know, people don't like powerful, competent women as evidenced by, you know, why we still don't have a female president. You know, there's a lot of um, gender bias against showing this fierce, powerful side if you're a woman. And women can feel uncomfortable getting angry, partly because people don't like them when they're that way. And partly as a result of the Me Too movement, when I really thought, yeah, okay, this is what's happening. My sisters, we're rising up when we're saying, no more. <laughs> you know, we aren't, we aren't going to take it anymore. And I realized that a book aimed particularly at women could be really helpful at this moment in history 
to really help us counter the gender role socialization that has suppressed our power, at least tried to, you know, and it's not working anymore. And I'm not going to stand for it. Hope no one else does either. (laughs) In the book, you start with talking about uh, gender roles, but you can't really talk about sexism without talking about racism, right? And sort of the intersectionality there and how the feminist movement has actually played a role in racism and oppression. So I'm curious your thoughts on fierce compassion when it comes to women of color and to changing, you know, more than just, you know, women's rights movements, but also in terms of other forms of oppression. Well, absolutely. See, that's why I'm so excited about fierce self-compassion and fierce compassion because you know, some people have kind of criticized, I don't think it's really fair personally, but criticized the mindfulness movement for being too much about sitting on your couch and attaining happiness and well-being, but not changing broken social systems. And our, our, a lot of our social systems are broken. They've always been broken. We're just paying more attention to it. You know, systemic racism, wealth inequality, global warming, right? So it's not enough just to focus inward in terms of healing and growth. We need to also harness our energy to alleviate suffering by changing the external world, things that are wrong with the world. And this is where fierce compassion and self-compassion, and by the way, in some ways there's no difference because even if I'm not, you know, a person of color, when there's racial oppression, that also harms me. So in some ways, this whole idea of self and other is kind of an illusion. We're, We're all part of the same system. And therefore we need to alleviate harm no matter who is being harmed. Right. So any form of oppression, whether it's based on sexual um, or uh, sexual orientation or gender identity or race or class or religion or, you know, any any form of oppression harms us all. And so I really think that being able to tap into the power of fierce compassion and it is powerful. It is a powerful energy. You know, I I talk about Kali in many ways as being the. symbol of this fierce compassion or Durga, a lot of these uh, Hindu goddesses, which are very, very fierce. And what they do at Kali, she's got um, severed heads in her hand and it seems so horrible, but what she symbolizes is um, the destruction of the illusion of separation. That's what she's focused on. And so when you use this powerful energy to cut away the illusion of separation, you know, the illusions and, um, wrongheadedness that leads to things like systemic oppression, then that's actually a good thing. And uh, so I really think that this is something we need to harness, but we always need both. We always need both. So for instance, let's just look at oppression. If So I've, I'm kind of both oppressed and the oppressor, right? So I'm a woman, so I've got experience being part of an oppressed class and I'm a white person. So I've experienced being part of a privileged class. You know, I've got other identities as well, but we need both fierce and tender compassion, and both inward and outward. So um, in terms of being part of an oppressed group, you need a lot of tender compassion to hold the pain of it, you know? And this this pain is generational, right? It goes way back. So to be able to open, we don't wanna just get angry about it as a way of covering up the pain. We also wanna make sure we do what we can to heal from some of the pain of this. This is where the tender self-compassion comes in. But we also want to do something about it, right? Fight, be brave, stand up, you know, sometimes even you know, risk people not liking us. People give us a lot of blowback when we stand up to entrench power structures. So we need that bravery, the strength, the commit to making things different. Um, and then as part of a, a group that's, you know, historically oppressed others, again, you need that tender self-compassion to hold the shame of it. Right. Why why do people not like to acknowledge that they're part of the problem? Because it hurts. It's shameful. You know, it's painful. So you need the tender self-compassion to open to the pain of that. And again, you need the fear self-compassion to commit to doing something about it. So and, and this is, again, not only internally in terms of changing yourself, but also changing externally. So I'm really hoping, you know, we'll see, but I'm hoping this will make a small contribution to the work being done in the world because it's, because again, this isn't just ideas. These are tools. These are practices. This is something you can do to actually strengthen these skills. And it's a skill set, fierce and tender self-compassion. Well, there's certainly a fierceness to you. And I feel like there's (laughs) um, there's something that happens, I think, as women get 
into their fierceness where there's this yeah. strength that shows up. And yeah. thinking about uh, Kali and Durga, when I was in graduate school, that was probably one of the first times that I really made contact with my fierce compassion. I actually withdrew from graduate school and went to a, a yoga program because the because gra- I was in an unhealthy place. And I was given a mantra to, to Durga. And what's interesting about Durga is she's this Hindu goddess that sits upon a lion. She's a mother energy. She's a god, mother goddess. And she has eight arms. And in those arms, she holds weapons. But what's interesting about these weapons, they're things like a shield and a, a, an arrow uh, and, a, and a sword. But the sword is for intelligence, right? And, the, and she holds a conch shell, which is used to make a sound, like the primordial sound of using your voice, right? So this combination of mother energy and fierceness, which not only is in Hindu mythology, the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, she's also another really interesting one that is about fierce, um, fierce motherhood. My name, Diana is after the Roman goddess of the hunt. She's the, the huntress, but also is the, um, the protector during childbirth. It's a feminine energy. That's the interesting thing. Even though women are socialized not to have it. So you might say we're socialized away from our authentic selves. Or the metaphor I use in my book is mama bear, which is something that is in every almost every culture. You know, it doesn't have to be Hindu goddesses. And that's why I like it because it's actually a feminine energy. A woman have access to it, especially with regard to protecting their children or protecting their loved ones. You know, so that's why. So, so you might say tender self-compassion is like mother, metaphorically. Fierce self-compassion is like mama bear. And so we have it inside of us. And so the whole idea is we just need to make that U-turn and tap into this energy to help ourselves as well as others. We have it inside of us, but we're also afraid of it. And I had this combination. Other people are afraid of it. And other people are afraid of it. And I had this conversation with women. I had um, women over while our our boys were all playing. And we, I was reading your book and I'm like, help me out. We got to talk about um, this this concept of anger. And I want to read some of the things that the women that I, these women mothers, all, you know, pretty much in their forties, diverse backgrounds, uh, talked about in terms of their experience of anger. So one woman said, it's a full body experience and I want to do damage. I want to physically hurt another person when I get angry. Another woman said, anger looks really ugly and I feel shame after. Another woman said, I have a hard time getting in touch with my anger and I've probably only felt anger once in the past decade and I wonder what it's disguised as. And then another woman said, "Uh, it takes a lot for me to get angry, but when I do, I go into full rage. I'm furious. So I'd love to talk a little bit about women and anger, our messaging around anger, and and also how we can reclaim our anger in a way that is um, compassionate and actually an agent for change. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of my the book is about you know my struggles with anger. I don't. I'm not like an anger management expert. I'm not writing the book as someone who's like figured it out. You know, I'm actually you know, very honest in the book, this is something I struggle with. I am more young than yin. Um, I, I access my anger pretty easily, but sometimes it's not balanced enough. And, you know, as a mindfulness teacher, I was always kind of like, okay, I need to use my mindfulness to work with my anger. And, you know, want it was kind of more of a make space for my anger. I didn't judge my anger, but I didn't honor my anger either. And it was when I was working, I was working with anger and I was doing work with some of the archetypes. And I realized that this part of me, this is my power source. You know, this is what has allowed me largely to accomplish a lot of the things I've accomplished in my life. It's a good thing. That doesn't mean that you want to, you know, harm people with it. Absolutely not. But the energy itself is a positive, productive force of life. And so I actually bought a picture of Kali and I put her over my meditation cushion and like started thanking her and really appreciating that energy. And I think women don't usually they don't have a healthy relationship with anger because from the time we're little, we're, we're told it's ugly, you know, when you're angry. Uh, it's, it's, we're also told it's abnormal for girls to be angry. When boys and girls are upset, what the research shows is mothers interpret their boys' upsetness as anger, and that's okay. Men, boys are allowed to be angry, but girls are, are it's interpreted as sadness. It's like invalidated. They aren't allowed to be angry, so it's not reflected back to us. So very early on, we start to think, okay, I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm ugly when I'm angry. People don't like it when I'm angry. So either we press it. A lot of people repress their anger. 
which uh, is not healthy. And sometimes it comes out like a self-criticism, like internalized anger. It's actually not good not to be at all in touch with their anger. Or what happens is people don't identify as being angry and they bottle it up and they bottle it up. And then when they really get angry, they just explode, right? It's just like so extreme. And then they feel guilty and shame. Instead of, you know, what we really need to do, and again, not that it's easy to do, I'm not pretending it's easy, but what we need to aim for is harnessing our anger for good, right? So anger can be constructive. It gives you focus. It allows you to be brave. It suppresses the fear response. It energizes you. If it's focused on alleviating suffering, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement started by a woman, you know, or the Me Too movement, we should be angry. You know, these are these behaviors, racism, sexual harassment, sexual assault. It is not okay, And we need the power of our anger to stand up to it. But we need to make sure that was focused on alleviating suffering, which means focusing on the behavior, not tolerating the behavior, as opposed to harming people. Right. Because if you start getting hostile at people and harming people with the anger, then it's no longer in the service of alleviating suffering. And so that's really the dividing line. And again, it's, it's easy to forget. It's easy to get knocked off balance. But it's possible to do it as long as that's clear your criteria. Is this causing suffering or is this alleviating suffering? And it's a very powerful tool for alleviating suffering, energizing you, making you brave when it's properly aimed. Um, but you, you got to work with it. And here's the thing, people won't like it. People, I mean, think about it. Who benefits from this system where women are nice, they're self-sacrificing, they always do what other people want. They aren't, they don't want too much for themselves. They don't stand up for themselves. Well, that really serves patriarchy, doesn't it? And it's like, if we don't want the system anymore, that means we're going to have to be willing to have people, you know, some people will respect us. Some people may not like it as much. And that's the thing with self-compassion is you aren't so dependent on other people liking you to get your sense of self-worth. You know, you, you can be more um, self-sufficient. So it, it's, it's pretty radical. It really is, you know. Hi, this is Diana here, and I have some upcoming events that you might be interested in. At Inside LA, I'm going to be offering a series of courses on ACT, and really it's for the general public and practitioners that are interested in deepening their practice of ACT in their life. On Sunday, June 27th from 3.30 to 5 p.m., I'm going to be exploring acceptance. And on Sunday, August 29th, I'm going to be exploring values-rich living. So I hope that you can meet me there. And for parents and educators, I have two webinars coming up with Julie Bogart. One is on psychological flexibility in parenting, and the other is on compassion in parenting. You can find all my events at drdianahill.com slash events. In Fierce Compassion, you share a lot about your personal history. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Everything from you know, picking up where you left off and talking about compassion and how in your first, you know, your first marriage, how that led you to self-compassion, yeah. but, but you go deeper in talking about your experience of, of being a mom to Rowan, who is a child with autism to uh, your experiences at work and uh, right. uh, seeking promotions in the, in the academia to your experience as a single woman and finding self self-love and, and really seeing that your your wholeness and happiness doesn't depend on a man. Yeah. And also with the sex predator who was really inspiration. Yeah, no, I do. I so I, I'm really personal. My first book was the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten so much feedback from from people saying that's what made my book so valuable, that it's not like I'm this guru telling people, you know, what the right thing to do that by sharing my story, it really allowed them to go deeper into it. And so I may, I wanted to make sure that I was equally vulnerable in my second book. It's just kind of who I am. Um, but yeah, so I, I lay it all out there. <laughs> Thank God I'm a self-compassion teacher, not a mindfulness teacher. I like to joke. <laughs> in some ways, that's the yin of compassion, right? Of, of that vulnerable. Uh-huh. I mean, if we talk about Durga again, she has a yeah. bare foot that, that she puts out and, you know, on, on her, on her lion, there's this bare foot facing forward and there's this vulnerability to you with also this fierceness. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about how, 
you know, if we take, for example, the workplace, because actually in, in academia and one of the places where you, it's very dominated by men, uh, white mm-hmm. men in particular, uh, being a, a fierce woman in the workplace, I imagine you've gotten a lot of pushback in that. And then also you've talked about your own self as having some bulldog energy that you've had to yeah, work with yeah. there. Yeah, right. And yeah, so it's not, it's not, hmm, how do I put this? So I can see myself clearly and sometimes it is out of line. I'm not going to pretend it's not, right? So I tend to be a little reactive by nature is partly why I have a mindfulness practice. I'm just wired that way. Like Chris Germer, my good colleague, he just says, Kristen, you're just wired that way. It's whatever my physiology. Um, and I haven't mastered it. I've got, I can work with it. I can apologize. You know, it's like, it's workable, but it's still there. Um, and he's so yin. I'm more young than yin and he's more yin than young. We're, we're yeah. both both, but you know, yeah. yeah. And so it has gotten me in trouble, but it's for instance, I know that people, if I had been a man, they wouldn't have reacted so negatively to me being really, for instance, I, I can be really blunt, especially if I give my opinion on, you know, someone says something that I think doesn't make sense an academic argument, I'll just say it. The man did that. People didn't even think about it. But a woman, it's like, oh, that was blunt, you know, and these are all these unconscious biases really affect people's perceptions. And so, I mean, that's why, again, you need both sides of self-compassion because I'm, it'd be nice if people like me, but I don't need them to like me. You know, I want to, I want to do what's right. I want to help people. You know, my whole life is devoted to helping people. It's not like I don't care about other people. But that's the freedom it gives you is you aren't so dependent on what other people think of you, which is which is really a freedom. So I'm so I can be very, very authentic. And again, sometimes maybe I, I could be a little more politic or a little more polite and something I still work on. You know, I like every day I commit to trying to make sure my actions don't harm other people. So you work with it. <clears throat> so, again, I used to kind of have a little bit of shame around this, especially because you hear I am a com- mindfulness and compassion teacher. But this is this is a revelation that led me to write this book is that first of all, it's bigger than me. It's really not about me. I mean, I'm serious. Every woman I talk to feels something shifting. There's something shifting at my friend would say the transpersonal level. It's like something in the air, you know, the Me Too movement, just things are Women are at a different place and are we have a woman of color as a vice president. I mean, something's shifting. Something's shifting. <laughs> it's not enough, but something is shifting. Yeah. So the things, but also, but even I think there's just something I think every woman I talk to can just feel it. It's almost like we're at it, we're ready for something different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's happening already. And this is, and I think part of the more women are able to claim that mama bear, which is again that Kali, that Durga, which are actually feminine energies which scare the bejesus out of us and scare the bejesus out of other people. But it's in us. And I really think women have um, access to this in a way that if we really work with it, who knows what will happen. And, you know, and again, we need to harness it, harness kindness. We don't want to just let it run rampant, you know, unfocused. That's why if it, if it comes from the place of compassion, that's why I think this is so cool, the idea of fear self-compassion, because it is a face of love. It is a face of kindness. And it follows in the st- footsteps of the great social justice leaders like Gandhi or Martin Luther King that used love as, as to power their social justice movements. And then this is really where the harnessing of fierceness for compassion leads to. So it's, it's not, it's, it's not even a new idea, you know, it's just kind of repackaged a little bit. Um, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, for women that are mothers, they probably can relate to that, that fierceness of uh, protection that really, what is the function of anger is to protect. And I remember when I was studying DBT a long time ago and learned, we learn about the different functions of anger and dialectical behavior therapy. And, and there was always this, you know, what Marsha Linehan would teach is that, you know, anger is there to protect, but also there's a time to gently avoid. And, and that there's this balance of knowing the wisdom to know the difference, right? Of when to show up as a strong protector and then also when to gently avoid to protect yourself as well. Yeah. And it's always a matter of balance. And then, so some of my practices, I don't know if you did them when reading the book, but are actually about help allowing the energies to um, merge and integrate 
which is kind of difficult because they feel really different. But like if you open to it and my personal practice, I found that if I intentionally say, you know, allow my fierceness and tender, please, you know, please allow my fierceness and tenderness to merge and integrate. And almost like you got to ask for it. You almost have to give it permission. It's strange. I mean, this is going to start sounding woo-woo, but in a way it doesn't operate at the level of logical thinking, right? It happens at the energetic level. Uh, And the more we do that, then I call it caring force in the book, you know, which is really the yin and the yang integrated. Um, and, And ultimately they need to be integrated. That's where we're headed. Sometimes we need to go left. Sometimes we need to go right. And they're both tools and we need to know when to use them. And so really, I don't have all the answers. My idea is here's some tools that I think are really useful. And then what you need to ask yourself is what do I need in this moment? And But really ask it honestly and authentically. Sometimes you need fierceness. Sometimes you need tenderness. But if you don't even know it's a possibility, how are you going to be able to use it to help yourself? I'd love to go back to um, the Me Too movement and gosh, the conversations that came up around that time with both my clients and my friends. And it just was this outpouring of, oh, wow. You know, pretty much most women have. Almost every woman you talk to, like my story that I tell in there, it's not unusual. You would think it would be, but it's not. How would you use fierce compassion and this yin yang of compassion to respond either in the moment if yeah. you can in the moment yeah. or after the fact. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so that's what happened with me. The story I shared, there was someone, you know, who was someone I knew and I had supported who turned out to be abusing women who worked with them, including a young woman who I was very close to. It was kind of like a, she was almost like a daughter to me, you know, I was really close. I knew her from very young. Uh, and I was just, I was enraged. I mean, I, 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 I access Kali like that, but she, you know, interesting, like unpacking it as unraveled all the different women's reactions. And first of all, first of all, why didn't I see it earlier? Because in, in some ways it was my yin was too powerful. He was a great guy. He did a lot of great work in the autism world. People don't want to see what they don't want to see, you know? And uh, and, and the, the whole thing with women is like, yeah, he's a bit of a lech, but that's just the way men are. I mean, think about how much we've excused in the past for that's just the way men are. You know, you just don't, you just kind of avoid him. You don't really, you don't confront it instead of saying, hey, this isn't right. You you know, that's not okay that that's the way that men are. They shouldn't be that way. That's our socialization that we need to question. And we need to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy into it. You know, I think it's my, my personal feeling is, I know I'm not waiting for men to come around. I hope they do. I'll do everything I can, raising my son and all that. And I think when men need to change, but I'm not going to wait for it to happen. <laughs> you know, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable if, if behavior is unacceptable. And I think as women, we have to do that in addition to everything else. Uh, and part of that is by owning our fierceness. And it is, it is kind of a political act. We're saying, I'm sorry, we aren't going to do it anymore. No. Is like the collective woman's no, no, that's no more than that. No, <laughs> you know, and we can say that we have to be willing to say that. You talk about in the book, sort of this bind that women are in, in terms of likability and competency. Yeah. yeah. And that, and I, and I found this even just with myself in terms of, as I'm growing my career in different ways, how, as soon as I start to step into more competency, how that's looked upon, like as a negative thing. And then I need to backtrack a little bit and be like, don't be so big, you know, don't put yourself out there so much to be likable. And that it really prevents women from being able to pursue what they care about in some ways, because if if they're, if they're, if they're too competent, they're not going to be liked. Yeah. It's, it's horrific. If you look at the research literature and it's all unconscious. If you ask people who's more competent, men or women, people nowadays actually say, I think women are a little more competent, but unconsciously they tend to assume that women are less competent. And if it's very clear that she's competent, they tend to like her less. And so one, one of the ways to do that is to, um, if you balance the competence with the tenderness, if you balance the yin and yang, the fierceness and the t- tenderness, and you actually 
spend intentional time and energy displaying a nurturing quality. It tends to mitigate that, the dislike. Uh, but, you know, I suppose, you know, because I've, I've suffered from that. People like at my work thought I was too self-promoting because they didn't like how successful I was and kind of, you know, and but part of me is like, well, how dependent are you going to be on other people liking you? It's not like you don't, you can't care about it at all. But again, you know, what are you going to choose at the end of the day? Authenticity? Or are you going to be so dependent on people liking you? And, you know, who's opinion? You're, you're good friends of people who really know you and love you will like you. You know, hopefully you can find a partner who loves you for who you are. And a lot of it's a value choice. But also we got to start supporting each other because women are the worst. Women are especially likely to dislike competent women, even more so than men. And so that's why in some ways the conversation is with women. We need to see what's happening. We need to call attention to it. It's not just the men. You know, women, we, we, we need to look clearly at how we participate in the system. And the only people we can really change is ourselves. And of course, we try to do what we can in the world. But there, there, are, there are some things you have to give up, you know. But for me, that's what self-compassion gives you, your sense of self-worth. This is, we've shown this in the, in the research. Your sense of self-worth is less contingent on popularity, on, on other people liking you. And that's freedom. That allows you to be a strong, powerful, authentic person doing what makes you happy in life. One of the uh, conversations that I was having with one of my co-hosts, Yael Shambran, she's she's actually interviewing Angela Duckworth this week. Uh-huh. Yeah, who is, uh, Angela. Yeah, yeah, so who's one of the, the main researchers in the area of grit. And we're like, yeah. I wonder what Kristen and Angela would have to say about this. And then and then I kept on reading your book. And I'm like, oh, Kristen talks about how she's a friend with Angela. Angela thinks self-compassion is probably one of the most important traits to develop grit. Because what is it that gives you the strength to keep going even when things are difficult? Self-compassion. You know, there are other things as well. It's not the only thing, but it's an important ingredient. And maybe we should pause here and, and define self-compassion because we've been talking about it this whole, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this whole time, right. but we need to rewind and say like, what is self-compassion? What, what is your definition through research? Well, so the easy definition is compassion in general is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So self-compassion is that concern turned inward, treating yourself like you treat a good friend or a loved one when they were struggling or suffering in some way. But it has three components. A mindfulness is actually the foundation of self-compassion. Because you first of all, you need to be aware of your suffering. You know, and this can be big suffering or little suffering, anything in between. You need to be aware of it. So, like if a friend keeps on calling you up and saying, Hey, I need to talk, I'm having a hard time, you're like, I'm too busy. You need to blow off your friend. You can't give your friend compassion. So the first thing is awareness. Um, and you need to uh kind of to be able to validate that this is hard for yourself. If you just, you know, shove it down and stuff it down and not complain, you aren't going to be able to give yourself compassion. On the other hand, mindfulness has some perspective and balance built into it, some equanimity built into it. So if you're like, you're lost or fused with your suffering, you know, this is like you're lost in the storyline or the drama, then there's no space to step out of yourself and say, well, you're having a hard time. Can I help? So we need this kind of perspective and spaciousness and awareness that mindfulness provides kind of as the foundational step. And then again, we need to respond with kindness, support, warmth, care. What can I do to help? Again, this this motivation to help in some way. And then really important, uh, what makes it compassion and not pity is a sense of interconnectedness. Right, the word compassion in Latin to suffer with is an inherent sense of, hey, I've been there if I have compassion for someone else. And with ourselves, it's like, yeah, other people have been here too. It's not just me. I don't feel isolated. It's not feeling sorry for myself. It's just recognizing, yeah, failure, mistake, struggle. This is part of the human condition. I don't feel so alone in this. And so my model and my measurement as well, all three components are in there. And yeah, so the research is just phenomenal in terms of it, it provides better mental health, less negative mind states like depression, anxiety, stress, uh, suicidal ideation, a more happiness, uh, hope, life satisfaction. 
It increases motivation. It helps with body image. It increases physical health because mind-body connection. The research shows it's a, it's a, it's a powerful strength and source of emotional resilience. It's kind of like a type of coping or emotional regulation. And it seems that, you know, so the research on self-compassion has been really skyrocketing over the last few decades, really originating with you. I mean, you're the pioneer in this, but there's also, um, you know, I've gotten really interested in compassion focused therapy, Paul Gilbert's work, and we've had him on the show a couple of times and his, his approach is about the flow of compassion. So not just compassion for yourself, but your ability to receive compassion from others and your ability to give compassion. And it seems that the research is also really pointing to these different components of compassion feed and are intertwined with each other, that when we're compassionate towards ourselves, we can also be more compassionate towards others and vice versa, that having compassion for others can feed into self-compassion. In your book, you write about how self-compassion in particular is really difficult. Right. So so if you just look at the plain old correlation, it's actually not that high between self-compassion and compassion for others. And that's completely explained by the fact that people who are, there's a lot of people who are really hard on themselves who are very compassionate to others. So they don't necessarily go hand in hand. But what the research shows is the more you give yourself compassion, it does increase compassion for others. Not a lot, just because people are almost at ceiling. People are so compassionate to others, there's not as much room to grow. And it also really helps with burnout. So it reduces what they call compassion fatigue or caregiver fatigue. So it allows you to sustain giving compassion for others. Uh, yeah, and I think it, Paul's Paul's approach is definitely right. I mean, in my I mainly focus on self compassion just because that's been my interest, and it, it is the hardest of them. Not just not just the West and the East as well. In China, for instance, self compassion training is really big because in China they're taught to criticize themselves. Confucian approaches. So so it depends on what Eastern country you're talking about, but it's definitely not just a Western problem. Yeah. Um, Buddhists in Buddhist countries where they really practice Buddhism, it's less of a problem because the idea of self and other interconnection is more prevalent. Um, but in places like China or Taiwan, it's actually, uh, we've, I, we found that Thailand had the highest levels of self-compassion. Taiwan had the lowest levels and the United States was in between. Hmm. So you have to be a little nuanced when talking about East and West. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the areas that you talk about later on in the book is around relationships and in particular yes. women and relationships. And uh-huh. you've had a, you've had a ride, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've had a ride of it. And, uh, and I'm sure that that ride has really informed you in terms of your perspective on women in relationships and compassion, self-compassion. Can you speak a yeah. little bit to that? Yeah, no. For, so that's, um, so my, my second marriage didn't work out and yeah, so um, I'm currently single. And, um, and a lot of my friends are in a similar position, you know, they, they were married and had kids and they're divorced. And, um, you know, it's hard to find a relationship with someone who can, yeah, you know, it's just hard to find a relationship with someone who's available, who's emotionally mature, who's, you know, does, has done their work, who's aware. I'm certainly not alone in this. And, but what I really started to see was um, there was still kind of the desire to find someone. By the way, I'm still like open to finding someone. It's not like I've given up on finding someone, but what I really started to see was that at a very deep unconscious level, my sense of being a, a valuable woman was predicated on having a man in my life, right? Because it's, it's so entrenched, this idea of the spinster, Someone who doesn't, I mean, all the women, are you dating someone? You know, so excited about who you're seeing, what's he like? And so much of that is built into what, what makes us valuable as a woman. Men, they may want a relationship, but they don't need one. It's not like built into their DNA, like that somehow their worthiness is dependent on having a partner the way it is for a woman. And this starts super early. I mean, I work with 20 and 30 year olds that are having, they're, they're feeling so much stress around finding a man, if they're heterosexual women or yes. finding a relationship by a certain yeah. age, that this is some yeah. way going to determine their success as a human. And so that's really where my practice has led me. Like I'm not buying it anymore because I've really um, come to see that com- completeness is not come from a man. You know, that's not where wholeness comes from. 
wholeness comes from within. And of course, when you go inward, you're also going outward to the big interconnection. You know, wholeness comes from being part of life. And that's where the spiritual part of self-compassion comes in. Wholeness comes from having an open heart. Wholeness comes from realizing that we're part of something much larger than ourselves. And our value isn't determined by a person saying, I love you, I commit to you, you're so special. Because that's fragile. I mean, it lasts for a while. Some, some people are lucky and God bless them. And that's wonderful that happens. Some people are lucky enough to find a partner and it lasts their whole lives and they're happy relationships. But that's not the majority, right? And so do we really want our happiness to depend on that? You know, or do we find our happiness elsewhere? And then, you know, it's not like instead of a relationship, then if we do have a relationship, then we'll just have that much more to give in the relationship. It's been a hard one for me, but I'm really, I'm not going to honestly say I'm single. I would love a relationship if it happens, but my happiness isn't dependent on it. And that I couldn't have even said that maybe even five years ago. So I'm really proud of myself. It's, It's freedom. It's real freedom. I think a lot of people will, just really resonate with that and feel a, a, an exhale in hearing that. And I yeah. think about, there's a concept that I'm thinking more and more and writing more on about is in is striving yeah. and how we get caught up in our striving, whether it's striving for an achievement goal or striving for a career goal or striving to have a child or striving to be in a relationship or striving for all these things that are outside of ourselves. And, and it leads us into these, these cycles of uh, disenchantment, dissatisfaction. And that ultimately there's a different type of striving that you're talking about here with fierce compassion. You're talking about striving towards values or striving towards like a greater good or, or striving um, towards something bigger. I've gotten really interested in how to shift our striving into a more values oriented um, compassion based, less competitive, more collaborative interconnectedness. Sometimes it can get off out of balance. So you need too much yin without enough yang can be complacency. Too much young without enough young can be striving. And, and so to really talk about how to bring balance. So in writing this book, I mean, I've really felt like it's bigger than me. You know, it's not, I don't always feel like it's not me, Kristen Neff, writing the book, making, you know, these series. It, it's kind of like when you, when you, when you find it, when you, I'm very, very fortunate to have a cause, so to speak. I've got a purpose in life, which is to spread the word of self-compassion and to help people through it. And when you have that, not that, I mean, my ego gets in the way and I've got an ego and I have to watch it and all that and prick it and all those things. It's not like I don't have an ego, but it's really, it's not about me, you know? And that, and that, again, that is the freedom of self-compassion. It's, it, it actually, it, it really makes the self part of self-compassion not even really there. It's about helping, about being part of something larger than yourself, being part of this great unfolding of whatever is unfolding. Uh, and to do that, you don't need a partner. You don't need people to like you, to think you're nice. Um, you know, you, you, need, you need relationships to function. And obviously you want relationships and, you, you know, you want to have healthy, loving relationships. Of course you do. But it gives you freedom not to be so dependent on those things. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking about the concept of choice because I actually like to choose niceness sometimes, but it's not chosen for me because I'm under the control. I'm not under the contingency of niceness to get what I need in the world, but it's more so about it's a little bit manipulative, Yeah, but it's more about choosing niceness because I want to be nice here. Like I, I actually want to be loving or kind, or there's a sweetness that sometimes I want to step into. It's a natural expression. Yes. Right. Yeah. Natural expression. I'm actually, you know, I may seem really bulldog, but I'm actually quite sweet and generous <laughs> context. You know, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, talking from my fear side, but yeah, I'm also very, very tender as well. Yeah. Very loving, very affectionate. Um, and, and that's the thing is allowing each side to be there, not prioritizing one side of us over another because people want us to be that way. But again, I'm a little more young than yin. So for me, it's, it's all about balance. And sometimes I need to balance more the other side. I think everyone's different. And sometimes you need to go left. Sometimes you need to go right. And it's contextual. In some contexts, I'm very young. And in other contexts, I'm very yin. And it depends on the situation. Like with my and- son, I'm very yin. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
except if anyone threatens my son, then talk about mama bear, right? And so, but that's wonderful. We should be celebrating this. And, and so this is why I think my, my book is written for women in particular, just because of all the gender role socialization that tells us that this half of the inside is great, wonderful, but the young side, I don't know if I like it that much. It's like, oh yeah, well, I don't care if you don't like it. This is who I am. Oh yeah. No, I like my young. She's, she's emerging as I, as I emerge into my more fully into my forties, my here, here she comes my huntress. Yeah. And then once you get past menopause, then it's really the time when it can just come forward. You know, it's great. We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. Okay, so we have to talk about compassionate mess. Yes. Which is how your last chapter is basically, I'm still a compassionate mess. (laughs) Uh, So can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually a quote that Chris and I like. Chris Grimmer, I think Rob Naren was the one who said it, but I just love it, which is the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess, right? In other words, like, so what does that mean? That your goal isn't to be perfect. Your goal isn't to get it right. You know, your goal is simply to bring compassion to whatever's arising in the moment, whether you get it wrong or right, you know, and, and that is an achievable goal. So I, again, I'm still a mess. I still get it wrong. You know, I try to get it right as much as I can, but I, I, I'm probably a little better than I used to be, but not a lot. <laughs> so whatever. But I am pretty good at bringing compassion almost immediately to whatever mess I'm in or whatever mess I've caused. Um, and so it's an achievable goal that you hold any mistakes you make, anytime you get it wrong, you know, it's, it's not like you achieve balance and you stay balanced. It's like you achieve balance and then you fall off. Your goal is just the process of bringing compassion to whatever happens. Um, and there can be a lot of satisfaction in opening your heart. You know, the goal isn't to get it right. The goal is to open your heart. And, and once that's your goal, then this is an achievable goal. Not, not every not every moment, but a lot of moments. It's like tuning a t- guitar. You know, a musician has to pick up the guitar and tune it over the course of their whole lives. And the guitars just get out of tune naturally by just sitting around. So the process of compassion is the, or self-compassion is the, you know, noticing when we're out of tune and tuning back in. And sometimes you need to turn it right to fierce or you need to turn it left to to more uh, tender. But, you know, I was, I was thinking about last night, we um, oftentimes right before bed is with two kind of elementary age kids before bed can be a stressful time. And uh, my husband and I both raised our voices with our kids around the mess of our home. It's Sunday night and we're stressed, right? And and then I climbed into bed with my little one and we were we were reading. And I I read from them, read to them from Thich Nhat Hanh, some of his stories at night. My kids love him and his teachings. And one of the teachings in there was um, a child had asked him, How old are you? And Thich Nhat Hanh said, Well, I'm 2,600 years old because I'm in the lineage of the Buddha and I'm 110 years old because I'm in the lineage of my father and I'm six years old because I'm in the lineage of you talking to you right now. Uh And I feel like that sort of the moment of like compassion is like, we're very young and we're very old. So you're very, you're very, you're very young and you're very old, Kristen, (laughs) in your teachings. Yeah. Yeah. You know. In my behavior as well. Sometimes I'm yeah. very wise and sometimes I'm a two-year-old. You yeah, know? <laughs> exactly. And we're just continuations of, of all of it. And that's, that's just being in process with it. So, yeah. well, it's just been a, it's been an honor to have you on today and to share some of your work with our listeners. For those that want to learn more about your offerings, can you share with us how people can learn about you? Yeah. So probably the easiest way is just to Google self-compassion. My, my website is selfcompassion.org, but you spell it anyway, you'll come to me. And I've got um, 
I've got guided practices, meditations. I have videos. I have a lot of information on self-compassion. You can take the self-compassion test to see if you maybe this is something you want to work on. Um, there's research articles if you're interested in that and the links to my books to buy. So that's probably the best place to start. And then also the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is the nonprofit I started with Chris Germer. That's really kind of the training wing of self-compassion where you can take courses online and there's just a lot available. Thank you for what you've dedicated your life and your career to a lot of fierceness too and compassion. So thank you for writing this book and for who you are. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. Was I too fierce for you? No, I think it's good.